Chapter 29 of The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Andy Glover. The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls. By Elizabeth O'Neill. Chapter 29. A New World. At the end of the 15th century, there appeared a man who startled people as much as Copernicus with his new ideas about the stars. The thing which this man, the great Christopher Columbus, said was that the earth was round. People thought this very ridiculous, for could not anyone see that the earth was flat? But Columbus only repeated, Sail to the west and you will find the east. This sounded like the words of a madman, but what Columbus meant was, that if men could sail across the Atlantic, they would come round to the other side of the continent of India. Of course, everyone knows now that Columbus was right when he said the world was round, but to the people of that time it sounded foolish. Columbus himself was soon to sail across the Atlantic, the Sea of Darkness as it was then called, and find land across it. He thought that it was India, and never knew before he died that it was really the great continent of America, which people up to that time had known nothing about. It was true that if Columbus had sailed round the coast of America and on, he would have reached the coast of India. Columbus was born in Genoa, one of the great seafaring towns of North Italy, but it was to the court of the King of Portugal that he went to tell his tale, and to ask for money and ships to help him sail across the Atlantic to reach the east by going west. The reason for this was that the sailors of Portugal had been making voyages of discovery all through the century, though none had ever ventured across the Atlantic. Portugal was one of the Christian kingdoms which had been formed in the Spanish peninsula during the long struggle between the Christians and the Saracens, which went on all through the Middle Ages. The little kingdom ran along the western coast of the peninsula and its people naturally were very much interested in the sea. At the beginning of the 15th century, one of the sons of King John of Portugal, called Prince Henry, had made up his mind to give his life to helping to find out something about the new lands which lay beyond those which the men of the Middle Ages had known. In the Middle Ages, the Mediterranean Sea had been, as it were, the center of the world. The lands which had been won by the Roman Empire were thought to be the most westerly part of the earth. Beyond them, men thought that the Atlantic Ocean stretched across to the ends of the earth. To the east were the great stretches of Asia, and China had been reached by Franciscans who went to try to convert the great Khan, the great ruler of the Mongol race, which had conquered so much of Asia in the 13th century. The only men in the Middle Ages whom we know traveled for the love of discovery were three Venetians, Marco Polo and his father and uncle, who also traveled to the court of the great Khan and lived there many years. Marco Polo wrote an account of all he had seen, but very few people took any notice of it, although they were ready to believe the wildest and most impossible tales about the East. Marco Polo's father and uncle had started off from Venice to trade at Constantinople the year that Marco was born. He was fifteen years old when they came back and told how they had crossed Asia, reached China, 
and seen the court of the great Khan. They were going back again, and the boy begged to go with him. He went, and the great Khan was pleased to have him at his court. He learned the Chinese language and traveled into Persia, but always he went back to the court of the great Khan. After some years, Marco and his father and uncle were anxious to go home again, but the great Khan hated to let them go. But at last, after seventeen years, he did. When they arrived in Venice, dressed in strange clothes, like the people of Asia, people would not believe them when they told them who they were. But Marco prepared a great feast, to which they asked their friends. And he and his father and uncle appeared dressed in beautiful crimson satin robes. When the banquet had begun, they removed these clothes and put on others, just as beautiful, while the first ones were cut up and divided among the servants. Then the old clothes in which they had come back from Asia were brought in and the seams were slid up. The most beautiful jewels fell out of them. And then at last their friends believed that it was really the polos, come back with great treasures from the east. But they were really the only men in the Middle Ages who seemed to have been anxious to visit strange lands. In the 15th century it was quite different. People became filled with a wish for discovery and adventure. It was part of the new spirit of the Renaissance. And this was how Prince Henry of Portugal gave up the pleasant life at his father's court and went to live on a lonely spot on the southern coast of Portugal so that he might give all his time to the study of seamanship. The prince's motto was desire to do well, and he seems to have felt that this was the best way to carry it out. Up to that time, the northern deserts of Africa were all that were known of that continent. But Prince Henry sent out men and ships every year, and they sailed farther and farther south each time. Before this, people had believed that anyone who passed beyond a certain point on the coast of Africa would be changed from white to black. It had been thought, too, that that part of the world would be too hot for white men to live in. Some people said that there were great monsters there, and the sea was made of fire, or at least of boiling water. But now it was seen that these old tales were ridiculous and Prince Henry's sailors even landed on the coast of what is now called Guinea and brought back gold dust which they found there. They also brought back Negroes as slaves for their prince, who was kind to them and taught them to be Christians. But this was the beginning of that dreadful slave trade in which the Negroes for hundreds of years were carried off to work in far-off countries as slaves to white men. One of the most daring sailors who sailed along the coast of Africa in Prince Henry's ships, was a Venetian called Catamosto, and he has written an account of his adventures. He tells how he sailed to Madeira, where Portuguese settlers were already living, on to the Canaries, and then on to Cape Blanco, or the White Cape, and then farther south still, to the mouth of the River Senegal, where the Negroes thought at first that the ships were birds, and then that they must be great fishes. They thought, too, that it was very funny to see white men, and they tried to wash the white off. Catamusto sailed on past Cape Verde, which was the farthest point yet reached by the Portuguese. He could not understand why the pole star seemed to be so low in the sky as he went farther south. And when he got back, he told Prince Henry about it, and also how he had seen a new and brilliant group of stars, which we now know to be the Southern Cross. 
He did not know that the world was round, and that these changes in the position of the stars were caused by his moving over the curved surface of the earth. Prince Henry died in 1460, but the work he had begun went on. In a few years the Portuguese had crossed the equator and had landed near the mouth of the river Congo. The black king of Congo received them with great honor. He sat without any clothes at all on a throne of ivory. He wore copper bracelets on his arms and a horse's tail hanging from his shoulder. He became a Christian and sent his children to Portugal to be educated. At last, after some years, a brave sailor called Bartholomew Diaz, one of a family of sailors who had been for long in Prince Henry's service, sailed right round the south of Africa, past the Cape of Good Hope, and into Algoa Bay. Diaz would have liked to sail much farther, but his men were weary and impatient, and he had to sail for Rome. He told the king of Portugal about the great storm they had had to face as they passed the Cape, and he wanted to call it the Cape of Storms. But the king thought that the Cape of Good Hope would be a much better name, and so it has been called to this day. The king of Portugal had called the Cape the Cape of Good Hope because he hoped that round it a new way would be found to India, and new trade with that land would begin between west and east. Ten years after, he sent out four ships under one of his noblemen called Vasco da Gama to try to reach India in this way. The ships sailed south and were nearly wrecked in trying to pass the Cape of Good Hope. The sailors wanted to turn back, but their commander was very stern and grave. They were going on, he said, whatever happened, and so they did. They sailed joyfully into a calm sea on the other side of the Cape. But another storm came, and again the men wished to turn back. But their leader was determined to push on. He worked as hard as any of his men in managing the ships against the storm. They passed the island of Santa Cruz near Algoa Bay and saw the cross, which Diaz had set up. For this was how the Portuguese showed that they had taken possession of the land in the name of their king. At last, on Christmas Day, they sailed into the mouth of a great river, which they called the River of Mercy to show their gratitude for the time of peace and rest they were to enjoy there. But this name has not remained, as most of the beautiful names which the Portuguese, and after them the Spaniards, gave to the lands they discovered, and because they found it on the birthday or natal day of our Lord, they called it Natal. It is now called the Zambesi River. From here they sailed up the east coast and a friendly king gave them a pilot to lead them across the sea to India. It was twenty-three days before they reached Calicut. Here the natives received them gladly, hoping they had brought gold, silver, corals, and scarlet cloth, for which they were ready to give them cinnamon, cloves, ginger, and many spices in return. These natives did not belong to the Aryan race, like the people of northern India, but were smaller and darker, and rather like Negroes. The Portuguese had not brought so much as the king of Calicut had hoped, but they sailed home again, very content, and landed in Portugal nearly three years after the time they had sailed away. There was great rejoicing in Portugal and in Europe, except indeed in Venice. The Venetians were sad, for it was they who, up to now, had received the rich silks and spices of India, and sold them in Europe. Arabs and Moors had carried these things to Ormuz, a town on the Persian Gulf. 
Caravans had carried them across Asia Minor to the Venetian ships on the coast, or they were carried in ships to the Isthmus of Suez, and then in caravans to Cairo, and in ships again down the Nile to Alexandria, where again Venetian ships were ready to receive them. But now, the way by sea would be much simpler, and besides, the Portuguese took care to prevent things going in the old way, and so Venice was ruined. The days of her greatness were over. She has remained ever since beautiful but sad. Strangers crowd to see her beautiful churches and palaces, both Gothic and Renaissance, and her wonderful pictures, for Venice was only second to Florence in the part she took in the Renaissance. But she could never again be the proud and busy city she had been in the days when she was queen of trade between east and west. When another expedition arrived in Calicut, the king killed many of the men, and when the news reached Portugal, Vasco da Gama set out once more to take vengeance on him. His ships sailed, carrying banners and crosses, but the leader had no idea of Christian forgiveness. When he reached India, he captured 800 peaceful merchants, cut off their hands and ears and noses, piled them up in a ship, to which he set fire and sent it drifting to the shore. This was to be a lesson to the king of Calicut. Then the king sent ships to fight the Portuguese, but they were clumsy ships, and the Portuguese easily fought them and killed still more men. Then they left a little colony of Portuguese on the coast near, and sailed back to tell their king what they had done. Vasco da Gama went once more to India some years later and died there. Another Portuguese named Albuquerque set up a colony at the town of Goa, to the north of Calicut, and it became the great trading city of the Portuguese in India. It was called Golden Goa because of the great riches which were carried from it in ships to Portugal. No one but the Portuguese were allowed to trade with India. On the south of Africa, Algoa was so called because ships going from Goa stopped there, and on their way back they stopped at Delagoa, which means from Goa, and so got its name. The story of how the Portuguese sailed round the coast of Africa and across to India is indeed very wonderful, but after all, they did the work gradually. One man followed where another led, and when they left Africa to sail bravely across to India, they knew that land was there, if only they persevered to reach it. But the story of the brave Columbus, the red-haired sailor with the blue eyes, who stood gravely before the king of Portugal and told him that the world was round and begged for money and ships with which to sail across the Atlantic to the other side of India is more wonderful and romantic still. End of chapter 29